We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. It's the Tuesday edition of The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is, as you know, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, questions about something going on in your life, uh, questions about church, anything and everything. All you need to do is provide the phone call, 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as always, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to the studio producer, and we'll get you on the air. We'd love to hear your calls. It's Tuesday, so we don't have a bunch going on. Let me get right to some questions that have been sent in. Uh, This first one is from our mobile app, and this is anonymous. And uh, he or she wants to know my opinion. It's all in caps, so I hope they're not angry with me. (laughs) Your opinion of church I found, Sovereign of God Churches. Anonymous, um, it wasn't a familiar name to me. So I tried to look um, them up, and there was nothing that was um, under exactly the wording, Sovereign of God Church or Sovereign of God Churches. Now, there's Churches of the Sovereign God, and there's all kinds of other churches with the name, uh, with the word Sovereign in them, um, and they have some characteristics that I'll talk about, but I couldn't find exactly that. So if if I don't adequately answer your question, maybe you can send me another question and, um, and, and make sure the wording is exactly correct. Now, the Church of the Sovereign God, there's one here in San Antonio that I saw, and they were focused on Sabbath worship. Um, there's nothing wrong with their statement of faith that would brand them as heretical. And while there's nothing heretical about Sabbath worship, uh, obviously this is a church that's going to be a bit legalistic and it's going to be a church that denies uh, the validity of worshiping on Sunday, the first day of the week. Um, And uh, I I think you're going to get into um, not a Seventh-day Adventist type environment, but, but one that isn't too far from that. Um, when you find a church that is is committed to Sabbath worship, uh, it demonstrates that they don't really understand a lot about their Bibles, about how to interpret them. They don't understand um, the difference in New Testament and Old Testament, the two covenants. Uh, and, and so I would I would say that's probably not a healthy church to go to. Now, all of the other churches that were listed the, the, under sovereign, under using that word, um, you're going to find that they're almost always Reformed. And by that I mean they're going to be Calvinist churches. Um, they they speak a lot about sovereign grace rather than a sovereign God. 
And what they mean by that is grace really isn't grace at all uh, because it's sort of, well, God chooses who's going to go to heaven and who's going to go to hell. So there's a lot of problems with that. So, I mean, I mean there's a lot of churches in San Antonio Anonymous, and, and there's some really, really good ones, and there's some teachers, uh, wonderful teachers. If you like huge churches, we've got them. If you like small churches, we've got them. And almost anywhere you're located in and around the San Antonio area, there is a Calvary Chapel near you. And I would highly recommend them. We're, we're different. We have different styles, different personalities. But they're all wonderful men. They're good Bible teachers. And uh, you're going to find from really small churches, some fairly new church plants, to churches that are larger, uh, like ours is. And uh, I, I just think that there's there's so much by way of good choices in terms of the churches you go to. I would simply... Uh, stay away from the churches that emphasize the sovereignty of God uh, in an incorrect way uh, because that's going to you're going to find yourself in a reformed theology one thing that was interesting the 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 uh, uh, church I spoke about first uh, the Church of the sovereign God uh, it was interesting because their their eschatology was pretty uh, standard and right on and that's that's kind of a unique combination to find but there's just a lot. That, that would really raise some questions for me. I'm grateful that you're looking for a church. I'm grateful that um, um, you, you, you realize the importance of being in fellowship. But it's also important to have a, a church home where the Bible is being taught uh, consistently. It's being taught accurately. And it's being taught uh, in a way that, that provides you the opportunity to really grow in your relationship with God. So I realize that answer is probably a little bit inadequate. So if you can supply some different um, wording in the name of the church, I'd be happy to comment on that as well. Good question, Anonymous. Thanks very, very much. Here is a question from Brad from our email inbox. Uh, Hello, Pastor Ron. Thank you for taking my question. My pleasure, Brad. Uh, He says, in reading the book of Joel, chapter 3, in the King James, this chapter appears to be future prophecy. I know because it speaks of the sun not giving light, and the moon has not darkened as stated. In verse 3, and we're talking about Joel, chapter 3, it says, And they cast lots for my people, and I've given a boy for an harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. And then he goes down to this. He says, when I read verse 6, and here's what he's reading. The children also of Judah and the children of Jerusalem have ye sold unto the Grecians that ye might remove them far from their border. What children is Joel referring to? Can I please explain? I can do that, Brad. You're right in 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 uh, understanding that this is the far future, the, the entire book of Joel uh, goes down the corridor of time and space to what we call the Great Tribulation. Uh, it is at the very end, and it is very astute of you to pick up on the fact that the sun and the moon have not been darkened yet. Uh, the blood moon that sometimes people get so hysterical about, um, uh, that's not happened. That's not for the time of the church. As you know, uh, Brad, the church will be gone when the Great Tribulation starts. So in chapter 3, um, uh, there is um, an emphasis on judgment and more to the point retribution. God is rebuking the nations that have taken advantage of Israel. Now we know in history Israel has always been taken advantage of. People have been trying to destroy Jews and Israel from the beginning of time. Uh, In fact, Jesus, in the Olivet Discourse and the Judgment of Nations, described it. Uh, and, And there, that judgment, the criteria is not faith in Jesus, but how the nations have treated the people of Israel. Those are the brothers of Jesus. So, uh, after he returns in glory, this judgment determines who's allowed to enter the millennial earth and who goes straight to judgment. So, that's not necessarily heaven or hell yet, but but at the end of the Great Tribulation, when Jesus returns, obviously there's going to be uh, billions of people who are still on the earth who survived the Great Tribulation, and they're going to be judged by the Lord. This is the sheep and the goats. 
they're going to be judged by how they treated Israel. And when you talk about they've stolen the children of Israel, uh, they, they, they've, they've put to death people with brutality and terror. Um, he is talking about how the enemies of Israel have treated the Jews, God's chosen people, uh, from the beginning of time. And those judgments are going to occur. So remember, this is the, the judgment of the sheep and the goats, the judgment of nations. And this isn't the great white throne judgment at the end. This is this is just to determine whether or not somebody is going to be able to enter into the millennial reign. And of course, if they enter into the millennial reign, it means they survive the great tribulation. And then, of course, they'll have a chance to be persuaded by the perfect justice and rule of our Lord Jesus uh, to go there. But this is a list of complaints. They've cast lots for my people. Uh, it's, you know, they, they have no regard for human life, but but especially God's chosen people. And they've regarded them as expendable. And the whole idea here is that God remembers and will pray. So the the um, the, the prophecy of Joel deals with the very end times, all of it. But um, there are different things. This chapter 3, the last chapter in Joel, is a chapter about retribution. God is going to pay them back for what they did. God is going to get justice. That's really Imported. Good question. I appreciate it very, very much. Here is a question this time from Lynette. Um, Lynette says this um, from our mobile app based on Daniel 12, 8 through 10. Is the pre-tribulation rapture doctrine too old to be true? Didn't God say that the understanding of his prophecies will be in the appointed time? Lynette, um, Daniel chapter 12 uh, really says nothing about the rapture. And of course, Daniel writing would have no understanding at all of anything regarding the church. Daniel refers to the saints in his prophecy, but the saints are the people of God, Israel. That's all Daniel understood. So Daniel doesn't give us, uh, I mean, there's, there's great long-term prophecies being fulfilled uh, in Daniel. Uh, however, um, it has nothing to do with the church, nor does it have anything to do with the rapture. We find the rapture. We find hints of it in the Old Testament, pictures of it, but we don't find any information about it at all because it was simply something that they had no ability to comprehend. Um, again, if Daniel, when talking of saints, means uh, Israel or the Jews, uh, the idea there is from his perspective, Jews were the only people on earth that had any kind of relationship with God. It's true that in the end, knowledge will increase. Um, he's told to go on his way, Daniel, uh, for the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. Uh, but remember, there's nothing in Daniel about the rapture at all. Uh, this is about the judgment uh, on the people of Israel, their sin against God. Um, it's it's uh, a forewarning about things that are going to happen in the future to Israel. And uh, as was the case with most of the prophets, um, they weren't listened to. Weren't listened to. So no. And by the way, the rapture theory. Um, you know, even the critics of the rapture theory says it's too new, not too old. It's too new. Now, they're wrong also because the rapture uh, teaching and understanding uh, actually was as early as the first century. And it was a mystery given to the Apostle Paul. So the very first churches were pre-trib in their eschatology. The, the rapture of the church is going to happen before the Great Tribulation. And Paul makes that about as clear as he can possibly make it. And yet there are still people who try to figure out um, ways to, to circumvent that. Uh, Lynette, one thing I want to remind you of, and I've said this to you in a previous uh, question that you asked. Remember, the one thing that you need to know about the rapture of the church and when it's going to happen is the answer to this one question. Is it even possible that God could pour out his wrath 
on people whose sins have already been judged. Is it even possible? Now, we know that Jesus took the full wrath of God in our place. That means we who are in the church, real believers, Lynette, we have already been judged. Our sins have been judged. And we stand before the Lord spotless and perfect. So is it possible that the wrath of God, clearly judgment from heaven, is it even possible that God could judge us twice? You remember what Abraham said to Jesus in Genesis 18 and 19. He said, could the righteous judge of all of the earth judge the righteous with the wicked? And that's when he went into the negotiation with God about the people in Sodom. And, and Jesus, who was there, he didn't argue with them. He didn't say, well, well, you know, Christians have to face it too. No, it's not possible. And remember, every doctrinal position that we arrive at in our study has to be consistent with the revealed character or the revealed nature of God. And since it's impossible for God to judge us twice, our sins have already been judged, it's impossible for Christians to be here during the great time of God's wrath being poured out on the earth. And there's so many other things, but but uh, no, the, the rapture theory is not uh, as old as the Old Testament. It's a mystery revealed to the Apostle Paul. Great question. Thank you. 3409585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Steve that I actually read yesterday, but I didn't get to uh, to it because we had a series of phone calls in the last half of the program. Steve's question is, um, what do you say about all the pastors making the news for doing sinful things? I think it proves that pastors are hypocrites and liars. Um, Steve, that's pretty harsh. Um, you don't know me, and I, I, I think I'm not a liar, and I hope I'm not a hypocrite. Now, are there some bad pastors? Sadly, the answer is yes. I even said on the program yesterday, Steve, that there are some pastors who aren't even born again. And when you're not born again, you're going to do sinful things, and it's going to be a way of life for you. But don't broad brush, broad brush all pastors with the same brush when in fact there's a whole bunch of pastors who love God with all of their heart. They love God's people and all they want to do is help the people learn about who Jesus is and just how much he can be trusted with their lives. Now it is a tragedy in the New Testament church that we've got these well-known pastors. Now, many of them come from false teaching backgrounds. We're talking about faith and prosperity teachers. Uh, many others are seeker-sensitive. By that, I mean they've got these huge churches and all they're concerned about is getting people in. And they don't want to talk to them about sin or repentance. They just say things to make them feel good about themselves. They don't tell them if they're living with somebody they're not married to that you shouldn't be doing that. So they're they're actually enhancing the people's ability to sin, and they're going to stand before God and be judged for that. But don't judge me, Steve, and I I, I know a lot of pastors, um, but I'll, I'll make this personal. Don't judge me based on horrible behavior by people whose walk with the Lord is questionable. So what I say about it is that it's a tragedy. There's a lot of those people that I wouldn't want to be when they stand before the Lord. But the reality is, in our flesh is nothing good. And Steve, I'll say one other thing and make this really personal. Uh, I've been serving for 27 years. Um, we have had no hint of scandal. And even as I say that, the truth is, if I act in my flesh even now, I'm going to do horrible things. That's the thing we got to be honest about. Um, in our flesh is nothing good, and if we are, are in the flesh instead of the Spirit, then uh, all of us, pastors um, or not, all of us 
are going to be in a place where we're going to do horrible things and bring great shame uh, to the name of Jesus. I don't want that to be the case for anybody. Um, Nonetheless, that's just the way that it is. So I hope that helps you a little bit. Don't be too cynical, Steve. Here is a question from Randy from our email inbox. Hi, Pastor Ron. My wife and I have been praying and are still indifferent about our dilemma. Hmm. I have an unbelieving brother who calls me daily to see how I'm doing. We chat daily, except the weekends. It seems like every week he has a pity party about his life. I'm constantly talking to him about Jesus. Good for you. That's in my editorial opinion. And then he says, especially after getting a girl pregnant and only knowing her for a few months. He's 37 years of age now. He does not take my advice. He's not disrespectful about me talking about Jesus. However, he has his own way of thinking. He thinks he's saved, but he's not. My wife is constantly reminding me to ignore his calls because he does not take the counsel of the Bible. Don't feed pearls to pigs, as she always says. I do sound like a broken record talking to him about Jesus, however. I do feel bad if I do ignore his calls. Lately, I've been thinking differently and keeping our conversation short. What should I do? Um, Randy, I I don't know what kind of an intrusion that he's making uh, on your lives, you and your wives, but here's the thing. Um, Your consistent stand, and and I think brothers especially, family members, we need to be able to have conversations about all kinds of things. Um, but but here's what I would do. And he's given you an opening when he talks to you. Uh, you have a pity party about about his life. You can say to him, Randy, you can say, look, every time you call, you end up telling me how miserable your life is. And I'm telling you it's because you need Jesus. And and if you keep saying you're saved, but you keep living the way you're living, you're proving that you're not saved. So I would suggest this. I would say, how about you and I just talk about brother stuff and when you want to talk about important stuff, when you want to talk about the real Jesus, then I'm your man. And you want to keep that door open. So unless this is just a huge intrusion on your life, I see this as a good thing that, that the Lord sort of has your your relationship with your brother and he's kind of protecting it in the sense that, that um, um, when things really fall apart, and they will, He'll have somebody that he can go to. But when you keep talking and you said that you um, talk constantly about uh, Jesus to him, um, then, then I think you're, you're, you're putting him in a pretty dangerous place. The more somebody says no to Jesus, the harder their hearts become. And, uh, you know, there's, there's all kinds of ways to change the tone of a conversation uh, if he's going to tell you how miserable his life is, then you can say, well, wh- why do you call me with this? Why do you call me with this? You know I'm going to tell you you need Jesus. You're going to pretend like you're saved. So let's talk about something else. And let, give the Holy Spirit a chance to let him know that there is a safe place to come, but that safe place is going to be about trivial things, relatively speaking, rather than um, things that are really important but, but you can remind him, I repeat, when you're really ready to talk about something that's important, then you can talk to me and I'll tell you about the real Jesus. And see, that kind of approach is going to be used by the Holy Spirit to knock on the door of his heart. So remember the goal, and your wife needs to remember this too. The goal is to get this man the information he needs to come to heaven. Um, if in fact... Uh, you are talking to your brother and complaining about the conversations to your wife, uh, I might be like her and say, well, stop talking to him then. Um, But um, tell him the truth. Tell him the truth in love. But but make sure he knows that you're always going to be available if he wants to talk about something important. So keep the doors open, but be clear about Jesus and, and who you know he is. Just don't um, keep beating him up with the gospel. If he's, I, I always say and said this on the program yesterday again. When somebody stops listening, I stop talking. But with a brother, with family members, you always want to keep that door open. And be sure that his miserable life, he knows compared to your rich life, 
that he's lacking something. He's missing out on something. And if you'll do that, I promise you the Holy Spirit will use every opportunity to sort of knock on the door of his heart and then you'll be available. And pray for him constantly as well. You said you're like a broken record talking to him about Jesus. Well, be a broken record to Jesus talking about your brother. Storm the doors of hell, or of heaven rather, asking for your brother's behalf, asking God to do everything possible to go get him. And then you'll be available. Good question, Randy. Thank you very, very much. Okay, we are inside one minute for this Tuesday program. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Let me see if I've got a one minute question. Here's what I can do. I think Frank says, I like Hillsong music. With all the problems they're having, is it okay to listen still? Yes, Frank, it's okay to listen still. Um, Hillsong music, a lot of it is really, really good. Uh, it's, it's um, again, we can't paint with the broad brush. I'll come back to this in a moment. We have 30 minutes left in the show today. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the Word to Santa for Life. I'll be back in two minutes. To the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Tuesday show, 340-9585. Let me just add something to Frank's question when we ran out of time. He says he likes Hillsong music and wanted to know if it's okay to listen to them. Um, because of all the problems they're having. You know, the, the music, um, uh, Hillsong is, is uh, Dar- Darlene Zach in particular, has written some absolute standard, Christian standard, Shout to the Lord, one of the great all-time um, worship songs. Um, 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 other songs, Paula used to sing a couple of them that were just so beautiful. And they're good songs. So here's what you do with songs, Frank. You look at the lyric. And if it's honoring to the Lord, if it's consistent in theology with the Bible, then enjoy the music. And there's nothing wrong with having a good production. And certainly Hillsong, uh, their, their music was sort of the, 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 the standard of their ministry. And the fact that the churches and, and a lot of their bad theology has, has, um, has cost um, shouldn't, shouldn't affect uh, your taste in music. Um, I, I think it's fine. Uh, I think what's happening in some of the Hillsong churches um, is really sad. Um, uh, their pastors have fallen into horrible sexual sin. Um, you know, uh, Hillsong attack, attracted the cool kids, you know, the the uh, the Hollywood elite and, and uh, people that are famous. Um, but that that's not because of the music. So let each song stand on its own. And if you like Hillsong music, then you've got a lot of company, and I'm with you um, as far as that's concerned. So, yes, it's okay to listen to their music. Good question. Here is a question from Bernie from Kerrville. He says, Are people that are not of the Jewish faith but that read some Jewish teachings being led by a false teacher. They're reading books that are not in the King James Bible, such as Jasper. Uh, I recall a story about Isaac taking Rachel as his wife. This story is not in our Bible. I wonder if the people who are reading a Jewish version of the Bible have the same salvation. Um, Bernie, two things. Let me let me just make it simple. Nobody goes to heaven. Nobody nobody has salvation apart from Jesus Christ. Um, and I know there are some um, messianic congregations that non-Jews, um, Gentiles, have sort of gravitated towards the the idea being that well somehow if you're more Jewish then you you can you can learn more about Christ. And, and you can know him more and know more about him. And that's simply not the case. 
Um, Bernie is a she, I'm told. I'm sorry, Bernie. Uh, so um, there's, there's, there's no real value in reading extra-canonical books. Um, so I would say that if, depending on the emphasis on those books and what the point of those books, um, wh- whether or not they're false teaching churches um, are, are, is, is completely dependent on uh, the, the context of their teaching. But reading um, about uh, Jewish, um, and by the way, you said not in the King James Bible. It doesn't matter if it's the King James Bible or any of our other reliable translations. Um, it's just a matter of personal choice, but it's not something I would recommend. The idea that, that the more Jewish you get, the closer to Christ you are, is nonsense. And, um, you know, it's just the idea. It, it, to me, it's incongruous because the, the, the first century church especially, um, you know, those who were really Jews, they became Christians. They held on to their Jewishness to a fault at times, but all of that was corrected. The Council of Jerusalem and other confrontation, Paul opposed Peter to the face. But but the whole idea was to make sure that the same rules applied to Jew and Gentile alike, and, and God was creating one new family out of the two, out of Jews and, and Gentiles coming together to make one. So uh, there just really isn't any value in in becoming Jewish or studying Jewish things. Uh, I think as we study our Gospels, we need to understand the Jewishness of Jesus' ministry. But certainly that's not the application for, for those of us who are. So um, whether they're false teaching I, churches or not, I, I'd have to see what they're saying. But uh, it's certainly no value, uh, Bernie, in in studying things that are beyond uh, what our Bibles tell us. And again, your reference to the King James Bible, um, it's problematic if you think the only legitimate Bible is the King James Bible, then um, you're on the wrong track as well. Hope that helps. And if you'd like to to, to, uh, send in a question uh, or contact, we can get somebody to talk to you about that personally if you'd like to do that. This is an anonymous question from our email inbox. Hi, Pastor Ron. I was told there was an event that happened, and it happened at a huge house. The person telling me was described uh, was describing how big and beautiful the house was. My husband and I have been house hunting, and we've been looking at big houses. We only have two children, however. My husband wants a big house, but I would like a smaller house. He's talking about four to thousand, four to 5,000 square feet, and I'm thinking two to 3,000 square feet. I brought up to him how this Christian married couple has a huge house, and he responded with, I told you we can have huge houses as Christians. I'm starting to think differently, and maybe my husband is right. We can comfortably afford a size house he wants. And um, let me interrupt here, um, um, Anonymous. Um, Be grateful to God. Be grateful to God that you can afford a big house. Um, But I responded with, I don't know that couple's financial situation, but we don't need a big house and that we could give more money to the church. Please know that we don't argue about this but we have been praying about it. What are your thoughts on our situation and professing Christians who buy big houses or land? Uh, I I could go so many places with this, Anonymous. Let me first say, I know a couple, a very conservative couple. They love Jesus with all of their heart. Ernest and Marie are their names. Nobody needs to know who they are beyond that, but but, but they invited Paul and I to their house to have a, a lunch one day, and we were delighted to be able to go. And we were shocked. I mean, it was such a huge house. And they have just one child. And they started sharing, uh, you know, kind of what God has done and their vision to host people and be able to provide a place for people who are in need to stay and have groups that could meet at their house and things like that. And God answered their prayers. Their heart was in the right place, and they bought this big house and they're using it for the glory of God. So that's fine if that's what your husband wants to do. Generally speaking, however, I always tell husbands this. 
when you and your wife are house hunting, buy the house she wants. Husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church, giving himself up for her. And the reason we do that is because we're sacrificing our own desires and putting her desires ahead of ours. And that's a good thing. That's a sacrifice the Lord will honor. But beyond those two general rules, just make sure that whatever you want to do, um, it's for God's glory and not for your own. Um, if, If I were counseling your husband... I would say two things. I would say, okay, what's your motive? I tell our church all the time, motive is everything. I would say, what's your motive for wanting such a huge house? Well, I just want one because I can afford it and because I work hard and because, you know, it's okay to be successful. Then I would probably say, you know what? You need to really pray about this and let God examine your heart. Because if the motive is anything but serving God and bringing God glory, then um, it's probably not something that comes from the heart of God. Now, the beautiful thing about this is neither one of you has to make a decision. God will make it very clear. If you and your husband can go before him in prayer, now, I'm, I'm assuming you're in the Word together, you're praying together. If you and your husband would go to the Lord in prayer, maybe, maybe the next time, that you were going to be in the Bible together. And that ought to be a daily process. You can say, Lord, we need to hear from you. We're getting ready to move. We want to buy a house. And, and Lord, we, you, we've blessed us. We're so grateful. But since all of our money belongs to you, then this will be your house. So what do you want for us? And here's the thing. God has a plan for each and every one of us. This isn't something we have to guess about. I think as you are in the Word together with your husband, praying, uh, having prayed before getting in the Word, I think God will make it clear. He wants you to know what His will is, and He'll make sure that you are okay um, making the choice that, that He wants. So that's the thing. Just really ask the Lord and say, Jesus, your will, not ours, be done. He wants a big house. I want a smaller house. But God, both of us, we're here today. We're in your word. We're looking for an answer. Because what we really want is what you want. Nothing more and nothing less. And God bless you for having a heart to give more to the church. That would be great. Um, but, But God has a plan for you. And if you're like the people I talked about at the beginning from our church, They have done nothing but open their home to all kinds of people, different kinds of people from different backgrounds. And God is getting a lot of glory um, with their use of their very, very large house. It's more than 5,000 square feet, and there's just three of them. But, oh, that house is full, and people are getting saved in that house, and God is being glorified. So just, Lord, big or small, What do you want? What will bring you glory? Because that's what we want. And Anonymous, in that instance, in his living and active word, I can promise you with no doubt that he will meet you. And so it's not a question of, well, should we go look here? Should we go look there? Just ask him. And then you know what he'll say? Go buy the house you like. I've blessed you. I can trust you with the money that I've blessed you with. So go buy the house that you want. Here's my will. And once you know it, it'll happen and it'll be much, much better. Hope that helps. Good question. Thank you, Anonymous. One of the great things about our God is that we can go to him in times like this. We can go to him in, in for, for to, to know what his will is. He, he's not hiding it from us. He wants us to know. Good question. Here is our next question. This is from Bradley. Pastor, you say Jesus is God, but why does the Bible, including Paul, speak of God and Jesus separately? Well, it's because they are separate. They're three distinct, separate persons of the Godhead. So to make that differentiation, Jesus, when he was praying, 
Um, he, he didn't go out and pray to himself. He was praying to his father. So that distinction is made. The Paul says, um, greetings from um, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, they're separate and distinct persons. Now, they're, they're both completely God. Jesus is God. It's not because I say Jesus is God, Bradley. It's because Jesus himself said it over and over and over. And then in the epistles, Jesus' deity is referred to repeatedly. I mean, you, you have to already have your mind made up and not want to be changed if you read that. Uh, Paul writing to Titus, our glorious God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So over and over. But they're referred to separately because they're three distinct persons that form one complete God. We don't have three gods. We have one God manifest in three persons or personalities. Three separate ministries. The Father sent the Son to reveal the Father's holiness, to reveal the Father's love and compassion. Jesus came so that we might know the Father. And he died, of course, for our sins, that we might approach the Father. And then Jesus, as he was preparing to leave, to go to be with his Father, he sent the Holy Spirit to do the work here on earth. And, of course, that's the work that the Holy Spirit is doing. So, Father's God, Jesus is God, Holy Spirit is God. They're not junior partners, Jesus and the Holy Spirit. They're all equal. They're all fully God. But they have perfect unity. But make no mistake, they are three separate and distinct persons of our triune God. Good question, Bradley. Thank you very, very much. Uh, Hugh wants to know, uh, what do you think about Simon the Sorcerer? Was he saved? Um, Hugh, Simon the Sorcerer was not saved. Um, uh, Peter told him, and forgive my, my bluntness here, but Peter told him, may you, you, you go to hell with your money. Uh, when he thought he could buy the the gift of God, the Holy Spirit, uh, with money. So no, he wasn't saved. Now the the confusion always comes in here because it says that Simon himself believed. Philip was there, heard the message, he saw the power of the Holy Spirit fall upon people, and Simon himself believed. So the question is, what did he believe? Well, he believed that the miracles that Philip was doing and the power of the Holy Spirit that Philip was introducing them to, they believed, or he knew it was real. Now, Simon was a a magician, a sorcerer, who bewitched the people with with false tricks. Um, You know, no doubt there was some some supernatural empowerment there from the enemy, but, but Simon, everybody believed he was the power of God. I mean, he had him so so confused. Um, but but anybody who is a magician, let's just say there's, and we've all seen magicians on TV and in big shows, and they do some remarkable things. But every other magician watching them knows the tricks. And they know how they're doing those tricks. Well, Simon the sorcerer was a trickster. And he knew the difference between his contrived tricks and the power of the Holy Spirit that he watched that was real. And here's what he said. I want that power. And he was willing to pay whatever he had to pay to get it. So he knew that the power that Philip was talking about and demonstrating was real. But he also knew that his wasn't. And all he wanted to know was how much money how much money he could make if he had this gift. And Peter basically said, your heart is not right with God. He said, you have no part or share in this ministry and and basically told him to go to hell with his money. So, Hugh, I hope that helps very much. Thank you very much. Here is a question that comes in from Marty. Uh, Pastor Ron, can you please clarify this for me? When Jesus declares... John 3.16, is he telling this to Nicodemus, and were there others that heard him say that? Marty, um, yes, Jesus was very clearly, all of John chapter 3 is a very private conversation. Remember, Nick came to him at night, 
and um, um, he, he, he sought Jesus out alone um, and, and asked him these questions. Now, a man like Nicodemus probably would have had other people with him. So there would have been others who heard him say this. Nicodemus was a man of standing, and he always would have had people around him, not bodyguards so much as, as just people that were always looking for his counsel. So th- it's very likely that other people heard him say this. But this was Nicodemus. Jesus knew exactly what was on his heart. Nicodemus knew that what Jesus was teaching, combined with the miraculous miraculous power that he was demonstrating, Jesus knew that Nicodemus knew who he was. And so he's really preaching. He's proselytizing Nicodemus. And so that whole conversation is between Jesus and Nicodemus. And that's, of course, the conversation that begins with Jesus telling him twice, Nick, you of all people, Israel's teacher, and there's a definite article there, so the idea there is that Nicodemus was the preeminent teacher in Israel at the time. People look to him. Now, he comes to Jesus at night, and people make a big deal about him coming at night like he was he was ashamed or he didn't want to get caught. I don't take that position. I think that Jesus was busy, was always surrounded with people. Nicodemus was busy. He was always surrounded with people. I think nighttime was just the only opportunity they were able to go to Jesus and and, um, and and talk to him about this. Nicodemus, of course, is searching his heart. How could everything that I've taught been wrong? He asked that silly question. Well, how can a man go into his mother's womb a second time when Jesus said you'd be born again? And I think Jesus shook his head and said, Nick, 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 you know better than that. And Jesus was really asking him to make a commitment right then and there. And we know Nicodemus believed but he kept it secret because we men are cowards. He kept it secret until he saw Jesus die. So, yes, he he declared that to Nicodemus. That whole conversation was Nicodemus. And likely there were some other people who heard him say that. I love that passage of Scripture, by the way. Not just because of John 3.16. Okay, we've only got five minutes left. I don't think we had any calls today. People sending in questions, but don't think we had any calls. A guy wants to know, if you get married in a court, does God recognize the marriage? Of course he does, Guy. Um, Marriage is a legal transaction. It is a contract. And God simply wants people to get married. So... Uh, if you get married in a court, if you get married in a sh- on a ship, you get married um, uh, by justice of the peace somewhere, um, of course, if it's done legally, God recognizes the marriage, and it's always a good thing. You know, we have a lot of people that come in here, and they're living with their husband, they're living with their wife, and they get saved, and the Spirit of God convicts them. And we've sent people to go get married right away. Just go get married. Put, you're in sin now. So that would stop the sin. And later, if you want a, a bigger wedding, we, we can accommodate that as well. But it doesn't have to be in a church. It doesn't have to be by a pastor. The idea is that we're making a commitment first to our spouse, but we're also making a commitment to God. That this marriage now belongs to you. We've done it our way. We were in rebellion against you. But now we're going to do things your way. And this is our first public act of repentance. You remember when... Uh, Peter was preaching, and Paul was preaching. People would were always called to repentance. I always think of the people that that that, that burned their scrolls uh, that that were were demonic, and it cost them a lot of money fifty thousand drachmas, however much that is. Uh, it was just a public demonstration. Now I've met the real God. All these other gods and all these other things, then go away. So, guy, uh, if you get married in court. Jesus will be there if you're doing it for him. So, yes, he recognizes the marriage. Um, you know, we live in a Catholic culture here, and uh, they're, they're, we get all the time, well, my, my parents don't believe I'm really married because I didn't get married in the Catholic Church. None of that matters. You get married because you want to please God, you want to repent and publicly say, you know, once I was lost, now Jesus found me, now I want to serve him and honor him. Believe me, he recognizes that marriage and he's pleased. Good question. This is the last one for today. It's anonymous. Um, Pastor Ron, how much sexual intimacy is okay between an unmarried man and woman who are both Christians? 
My fiancé seems to disagree with my opinion. I'll bet. You know, that happens a lot. Here's the idea. There's no sexual intimacy that's okay between an unmarried man and woman, period, whether they're Christians or not, but especially anonymous for Christians. Um, you know, why do we want to have sexual intimacy when we know that that leads to temptation and, and puts us in a position where the enemy can capitalize on it? Why do we want to try to leave God out of our relationship? So if this is a man or a woman, uh, whoever your fiancé is, it seems to disagree with your opinion. I'm assuming that his opinion or, or her opinion is sex is okay, so let's let's be intimate. And, and uh, yours is, well, no, the Bible says that's wrong. Um, this might not be a, a spouse that God wants for you. Let me say that again. This might not be a spouse that God wants for you. So the, the only opinion that matters is God's. And Jesus said, flee from sexual immorality. Run from it. Now, I'm not one of those guys who says you can't hold hands and you can't hug and you can't do those things. But believe me, when you get to the intimate kissing and you get to other things that are intimate, um, you're really putting yourself uh, in harm's way. And why do we want to tempt ourselves or allow ourselves to be tempted? So, no sexual intimacy is okay. Get married. If he or she's your fiancé, get married and then enjoy the wonderful sexual relationship God has for you. Hey, thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Oh,